Chuck kicked us off a couple of weeks ago before the all Colossae gathering and showed us that James is a lot like the New Testament book. Uh, James is a New Testament book, a lot like Proverbs. So we can consider this as followers of Jesus as our book of wisdom. So in it is, is all of these things, the wise ways that we can live in Jesus Christ. Uh, integrated is the idea that um, we, when we come to Jesus, we have lives that are a little bit scrambled. Um, we are created in the image of God, and so parts of us are beautiful and healthy, and we have talents and gifts and compassion and other kinds of emotions and, and personality that, that's quite beautiful, but that image is corrupted because of sin. And so parts of us are wounded, and parts are broken, and parts are selfish. And so for this life, and we won't finish the job, but God has asked us to work with him and to work with the Holy Spirit to become whole, to become integrated people, where the parts that are broken get healed, and the parts that are unloving become loving, little by little and day by day, and we get a ton of grace for this. God says that he sees us as we will be. And so when he relates to us, he's never disappointed because he's relating to us as who we will be. But in the meantime, he does ask us not to be lazy and to stay the way we are, broken and and disintegrated, but he wants us to become integrated. And so he asks us to be intentional about the way we live. And what I'm defining for you is discipleship, becoming a disciple. We talked on Easter about the fact that Jesus said, make disciples. And when we come to Jesus, we're not there yet. We're incomplete. And so for the rest of our lives, we come together as family, as men and women of God, children of God, and we help each other become more like Jesus. And that means integrating the parts that are broken with the parts that aren't broken and becoming people that are whole. And, and that's what you are. And that's one of the beauties of this particular family is a lot of you have been on that journey for a long time, and you're already pretty well formed. And so it's, it's exciting to be with you and to kind of present you to Sherwood as, hey, This is what God does with lives that submit to him. He makes them beautiful. But there's still more work to be done, right? Or anybody feel like they're there yet? You're complete? Good. Okay. Yeah, even you gray-haired people are agreeing, so I guess we're not done, are we, Bill? Still got some growing to do. So we want to take a look at uh, 10 or 11 verses here today in James and just see what is the wisdom for us here. So I'm going to reread a little bit and just work through this with you. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Now, you remember just before this, he talked about temptation. And he said, let no one think when they are tempted, they are being tempted by God. And we've had some bad theology, and we've understood at times, well, God is, he's brought this for my good. And we're right in saying for my good, but we're not right in saying he brought this. The scripture says that when we are tempted, it's because of what's inside of us. It's the corruption that's in ourselves and in other people and in the devil and all that work for him. And so God does not bring trial. God does not bring temptation, but he uses it in an amazing way, and it's going to be a part of our lives. And now he's contrasting from the evil that the evil one brings and that corrupted humans bring. God always brings good stuff. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, Rather than darkness, he is full of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to shifting. God doesn't change. He doesn't stand in the corner. He's always the same. We can count on him being the same. He's extremely consistent. He's fully integrated, and God has never been disintegrated. 
Now, he says something very unique that I want us to spend some time on. He says, of, of his own, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We can run right by that, and there's two words in there that we don't use every day, first fruits and creatures. And I actually want to land there a little bit, so we're going to go ahead and go, Jeremy, if you would, to that next slide. In the book of Genesis, kind is recorded. It says that God created plants and animals in their kind. We call that scientifically genus and species. So there are certain kinds, and each of those kinds reproduce. And so we have seeds, or we have reproduction in animals, and they reproduce their own kind. There is a kind of plant and a kind of animal, a cat versus a dog versus a giraffe. And plants, you know, wheat versus corn versus flowers. These are kinds. And here James says we have a new kind of creature. And it's not a metaphor, it's truth. God has created a human, a race of humans, a species of humans that didn't exist before Jesus Christ. That's why it says Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And he makes all things new. And you are a new creation in Christ. So I would even say scientifically... We are a new species of human. And all the movies about mutants, those are about us. And all those ideas of, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have superpowers? That's just envy of us. Because in Christ and in the Spirit, we do have supernatural powers, right? I mean, it's a little bit of, yeah, that's funny, but it's a little bit of, ah, that's true. And so I named it here Homo Viteris, which means old man, and Homo Neo, which means new man just to give you a scientific label for a truth that James is teaching us. You are a new species of human being if you are in Christ. And who you are becoming, everyone else is not. Now, this doesn't mean that there should be envy or strife or pride. And actually what God calls us to do is invite every homo veteris to become a homo neo. So let's take a look at what that looks like. So, yeah, let's go one more, Jeremy. Thanks. So every good and perfect gift comes from above. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And here's a huge distinction between the old man and the new man is the resource that we have to live. We have the resource of the scriptures. And I want to really expand when you think of scriptures, I know what I put up there was a book, but the scriptures, the word is so much more than a book, right? And what more is the word, the word of truth? Tell me, tell us. It's a book where there are recorded words, but what else does the scripture say? Yeah, the book itself and the words have God has breathed into. So if we look at them through the, are the new senses that we have of the Holy Spirit, we actually can sense a livingness to them. This last week, I took the passage of Scripture that we're studying today, and in the morning, I sat down and I prayed through it and I read through it and said, God, show me something new. And I came up with five sermons this week. And I had to decide at the end of the week, which one of these messages do I preach? Because they were all really dynamic. And actually, last night, I was like, I don't know if I can pick. It's living and it's active. And every time I read it with the Holy Spirit, with a sense of paying attention and being receptive, it was living and active. It was something different. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, we have this experience all the time. So it's living and active. But also, the, Holy, uh, the Scripture or the Word of Truth is actually a person, right? Jesus, right? 
What does John 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, the Word of truth, and the Word was with God, and God wasn't holding a book, and God was the Word, so it was a part of God. Jesus himself is the Word. And so I say all this to help us stay free from being Bible-centered, book-centered, but actually to be Christ-centered. But God has deposited the truths and the realities of Jesus into a book. And that's the book that you carry around in your phone or that stands next to your bed. So the word, the source that we have, yes, it's a book, but it's a book about a person, Jesus Christ. So this is our source. So let's keep going. He says, know this, my beloved family, that every person should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Yeah, go ahead. Now, a lot of times when we look at the scripture and we teach on it, we talk about being quick to hear, slow to anger, and slow to speak, just in a very generic way. But I believe that this instruction is first given to us when it comes to the Scriptures. So I think James is saying, when you read the Scriptures, be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to come to conclusions, slow to look for application, and be slow to anger. Let me explain that a little bit. So here's how that worked for me this week. As I started studying, my first thought was, I need to get some good thoughts down that I can speak. I'm going to write a sermon. And as I started to do that, the Spirit kept saying, no, Rick, I want to I teach you something before you teach it to others. And so I just had this sense, every time I started to take notes for what I would talk about, the Spirit said, no, Rick, I just want you to learn this truth. And actually, that felt amazing. It was like, yeah, God's saying, I want to take care of you first. I want to fill your heart and your mind, and then after I do that, then you can consider yourself worthy to maybe talk about it a little bit. But let's not write sermons. Let's just learn. Let's just learn. So that was amazing. But the source then was the Word of God. So I chose this week to be very slow to take notes and to write down conclusions, and also slow to anger. Now, I believe one of the ways that that James is, is helping us understand this is when it comes to wanting to live life better which honestly I think every human does. Even if they're not a Christian, everyone wants to be a better human. They realize they relate poorly to people they love and they hurt their feelings and they want to be better. I mean, even, you know, even <clears throat> in um, the movie, you, know, you make me a better man. You make me want to be a better man. You complete me. I mean, what are all these words? These are words about my relationship with you draws me to be better. But when we don't have the good and perfect source of Jesus and the scriptures, All we can reach into is some sense of human emotion, and usually that becomes anger. So think about your own self. When you've been trying to be who you want to be, and you can't, you get angry with yourself. And more likely, actually, we get angry with the person around us or next to us, our spouse or our children. Like, why can't you be good? Why do you keep doing this stupid thing? And right now I'm talking to my wife, right? No. (laughs) I'm not. But we get that way with our children. And maybe you don't say it that way, but you feel it inside. There's just a frustration. Why can't I be good? And, And then James is saying that anger, that emotion, that intention is not going to work. So be slow to become angry. 
but be quick to listen. The way that we change is that we receive change. Um, this is what I believe, and you're welcome to push back, but I don't believe that we so much become better people, but that God gives us betterness or better actions. So, for example, I'm sure you've all had those moments where you're trying to share something about Jesus, and you need some special words, and you don't want to say the typical weird words. You want to say true and right words, and so you pray, and then you have these words. And then when you tell the story later, you're saying, I just know it was God. I don't know where the words came from. I don't even know what I said. And you're talking about this God moment where God placed in you a really good, clear message. I believe that God did not make those to be one-off examples about every six months. I actually believe that's the way daily life was meant to be, that we can actually say, God, as I get up today to go do what I want to do, I'm nervous, I'm anxious, and I know what I'm going to bring into the situation at work today is some frustration, and I'm not going to talk the way I want. And the prayer is not, God, make me a better person, but God, give me good words and a good heart and good actions. They're not going to be mine. They're actually going to be yours. But you're going to give them to me, and I'm going to pass them off. Right? You guys, I see heads nodding. This makes sense, right? It's that time when someone has deeply wounded you, and honestly, if you want to talk about justice, you don't need to forgive them. And you just feel like, yeah, they don't deserve it. And I could talk to all my closest friends, and they would agree. That person does not deserve forgiveness. But we know that Jesus calls us to forgive even our enemies. And so I would say you don't have to become angry with your inability to forgive. You just have to say, Jesus, give me forgiveness. I don't have it. I do not have it for this person. Give me forgiveness. Corrie ten Boom tells the story. You guys are probably already thinking of it. She was in a concentration camp with her sister, and she watched her sister die and I don't need to describe, you know what she saw. And as she was preaching a few years later after she was out of the camps, uh, someone came walking up toward her and she recognized him as one of the guards in the concentration camp, a guard that I think had either murdered or at least um, had hurt her and her sister tremendously. And as the man was walking up, her response was anger. She was angry and she said, I cannot forgive. But she kept praying, and she said, Jesus, give me the grace. And by the time that man got to her and she looked in his eyes, she could actually do what humanly she shouldn't be able to do. God gives us the grace that we need. That's what grace is. It's the gift of God to be, do, and say what is not in us as the old man. Yeah? You guys with me? We doing okay? All right. Yeah, Jeremy, let's go one more. So I'll read this again. <clears throat> Even There we go, thanks. Know this, my beloved family. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For human anger does not produce the righteous life or the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So this process of stepping away from this kind of humanity, this kind of woman or man towards this kind of human or man is actually a process that we need to choose, daily choose. It's not automatic, uh, and it's not just going to happen. And again, this is where 
the scriptures talk about make every effort. So in First Peter, Peter says, add to who you are, add to your faith meekness, and to your meekness add patience, and to your patience add goodness. Right before that, he says the words, make every effort. And I want to encourage you in that because there's a lot of theology that goes one way or the other. One side says, let go and let God. Just stop trying to be good and just receive, and that'll work. Uh, and that fits a certain set of personalities that love that. <laughs> and then there's the other side that says you've got to memorize Scripture, and you've got to um, talk to at least five people every day about who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's just this clear, fleshly, carnal discipline. In between those two extremes are the true way that we need to live. And what that is, it's a way of listening and passively receiving from God, but then actively giving away what we receive. So I wouldn't say that God is asking us to actively change ourselves. He's asking us to passively open our hands and say, God, give me the grace to be the husband I want to be today. And then I receive that, but now I need to actively give it. I need to get out there and give it and not just be lazy about that. So I need to move forward. So today, God, let me actively be a gracious student at high school, the student I want to be. And then you receive that from him, and then you just go give it. You just go give it away. But you can't be passive yet. You need to be active while God is also active with you. Now, this is the hard part, and this is the part we need to receive in the right way. Yeah, go ahead. But, gosh, I hate that word. But, be, it's, a, it's like uh, something's coming that's going to be hard. It's a warning. But, ah, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, they are like a person who looks intently at their natural face in a mirror. For they look at themselves and they go away, and at once they forget what they were like. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, that one will be blessed in their doing. I would imagine that verse reminds you of a different scripture. Do you remember what Jesus said at the end of Matthew 5, 6, and 7? He teaches the longest amount of time we know. He goes very, very deep, and he's very, very thorough. And at the end, he gives a parable. And what does he say? He says, the foolish man is like, what? A man who builds his house with no foundation. He builds it on sand. Anybody ever built anything on sand or with sand? Yeah. How's it doing today? It looks good in the picture you took, right? <laughs> but it's not really there anymore. Yeah, and, and Jesus said, you know, the one who hears my word and doesn't do it, it really wasn't worth the hearing because it's just going to be gone in a couple of days. But the one who looks intently into what I've said and does it, that one will be blessed in what they do because they're building on the foundation. So there's this two part of receiving and hearing and then this, the second part of receiving and doing actively doing, and that's what he is calling for. If we act out of this source of anger and unsaved humanity in the identity of the old person, this is the fruit we can look forward to, vulgarity and viciousness. Now, in the Western, in Western civilization, that doesn't look like vulgarity and viciousness. It does in other cultures, but we are really smooth and we are really subtle, and we've learned how to take those emotions and those attitudes and those, those actions and really kind of uh, make them acceptable, culturally acceptable. But what gives us away is when the moment is over and we go home and we talk to 
our friend, our roommate, or our spouse about what went on. We actually share what was going on inside of me. Uh, I remember my, my children coming home from high school and saying, yeah, this interaction happened, and they said this and this, and then I was like, blah, 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 blah. And they, they throw out this like rebuttal of what they said, and I said, did you say that? And like, no, of course not. <laughs> but what they're confessing in the moment is, I felt it. It's exactly what I felt. And if I actually felt like I had the freedom and the courage, I would have said it. And inside of us, apart from Jesus, this is all we're going to get, ultimately, is this kind of vulgarity and viciousness. Uh, when I was 18, I worked in a nursing home in Kansas during the summer for about five months. Uh, man, it was one of the most eye-opening experiences I ever had. There were, everyone there was probably um, in their 80s or older, and they had all been stroke victims. So they all were slightly paralyzed on one side. They had come to the hospital for treatment, and they couldn't go home because they needed assistance to live. And this was in a Mennonite community, <coughs> so it was mainly Christians who were in, the, in that place. But um, when you get to that point, the veneer is gone, for sure. And there were clearly these two kinds of people. One of them was a woman who was in her 90s, uh, and every time I went in to see her, she would ask me if I could read the Bible to her. What, would you read the scriptures to me? Uh, and I would sit and read that. And I was, while I would read, she would echo what I was reading, because she had memorized the thing. And she would sometimes cry, and she would just always be very happy, and you could sense, like, wow, this woman loves Jesus, even at 94. And all the veneer is gone, but what's left is still amazing. So clearly, this is her core. This is who she is. And then there was the mailman. And the mailman was about six foot two, and he was paralyzed on one side. Uh, And I remember, just to give you an idea, I was shaving him one day. I was using a Norelco razor on him. And I was standing over him, really trying to be careful and being loving, you know, and gentle. And all of a sudden, my head cocks back. And I realized, laying there, he took his fist and he came up like this and caught me right under the jaw. Now, he's 80-something years old, so it didn't hurt. It just (laughs) startled me because I'm being loving and giving. And all I could expect is, thank you. And what I'm getting is, bam. And I was like, whoa. And my first response was, oh. Of course, I didn't go anywhere with it, but I just realized all the veneer is gone, and all he has left is anger. And, and he had no reason to be angry with me in particular. He's just angry at everything, and that's what was left in his heart. And all he could produce was, bam. Did I scare somebody? Yeah. No? <laughs> Sorry. So I want to explain this mirror image just a little bit, because um, I struggled with it. I thought, what does that mean? I don't quite get it. And so I did a lot of reading, and here's what I understand. Uh, the idea is, in, in a day when there weren't a lot of mirrors, when would you go to the mirror? Like, if it was hard, if you had to go to your mom's house and look into that expensive bronze polished piece of metal they had, why would you go do that? Why would you look into a mirror in the first century? I say this in contrast because we go all the time. I mean, there's mirrors everywhere. But If you were rich, that's for sure. If you were rich, like we are, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. If you're injured or hurt or you're dirty or something's happened. So what you're going to do is to check out your identity. Like, what do I look like right now? What do I need to do? And so you go to that mirror and you look at it and go, oh, I need to wash my face. Oh, I need to do something with my hair. You know what I wanted to do was text a bunch of you this morning and ask you to take a picture as soon as you got out of bed and send it to me. <laughs> and I was actually going to put them on the screens. But I knew none of you would do it, so I didn't even bother. 
but we would all know why you go to the mirror in the morning when you showed us those pictures. Because you go to go, what do I need to take care of? Because I'm not going to go out in public the way I am. I'm pretty confident about that. Although with bedhead and stuff, it seems like it doesn't matter anymore. But you go to the mirror to figure out what about the way I look is not the way I want it to be so that I can change it, so that I can wash off the blood, so I can wash off the dirt, so I can do something good with my hair. And, and what the author, what James is saying is it's like you go to the mirror and you look at yourself and you see what you need and then you go away and forget and you change nothing. That would be like if you had all come this morning like you would have looked when you got out of bed. I mean, how would you look right now and how would you feel and how confident would you be to be in this room? And to talk to us. Yeah, we'd all have hoods over our heads. He's saying it's like that. If you look into the mirror and you see what you see and you go away and forget what you saw, that's what it's like to come to the scriptures and to read and study and learn and then not to do what they say. It's like someone going to the mirror and going, gosh, I look awful. (laughs) Okay. And I think he actually means it as something of a joke. Like the, the, the assumed conclusion is who would do that? The, and that's what he's saying. When you come to the scriptures, who would go into them and find the description of the new identity that we have in Christ and not live into it? And who would look into the scriptures and see a new way of relating to humans that's positive and good and enriching, but then fail to go and do it and continue to go away and be rude or careless or unloving or, or offensive? You know, why would we do that? That's what James is saying. So he said, instead, let's look at the word. Let's look in the mirror. We'll go, oh, my gosh, yeah, I need to take care of this, and I need to shave this, and then I'll be good to go. We want to do something about what we see. And then James ends this section of Scripture this way. He basically says, let me give you some really specific examples that's going to make it easy to know if you are living as homo neo. What are acts of love for those who need them most, and what is ongoing purity in contrast to this. And so he kind of goes to the most extreme. So if we would want to define what does it mean to act as a new human, he says this. If anyone thinks they are religious, that word for us isn't very positive anymore, but you need to let that go because for him it was a good word. If anyone thinks they're a strong Christian, if anyone thinks they are a strong Christian and they do not bridle their tongue but deceive their hearts, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, if they go to the mirror and they say, you look marvelous, and you don't, then you're deceiving yourselves. Religion or Christianity that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he's setting these up as probably the two highest and clearest examples of what it means to be a new human is when we do these kinds of things. And I want you to help me define them a little bit because we don't have a lot of orphans and widows on the streets of Sherwood and Tigard and Newburgh. So what, how can we extend this definition? Who are the widows and orphans in our lives? Affliction. Yeah. That word distress kind of jumped off the page at me, and I thought, you know, that's what really came to mind for me is distress, like looking for people that are distressed. Mm-hmm. And how 
Yeah, anybody run into somebody like that this week? Yeah? So they're out there, right? We can find anybody was that person this week? Yeah. Yeah, maybe sometimes we're the orphan and the widow. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that orphan and widow are probably kind of at the opposite age of ends of the age spectrum. So it's not about age, but what do they have in common in addition to what Peter said? What do orphans and widows have in common? They don't have family, they don't have support. Yeah? Very little power. Yeah, yeah. So who sees people like that during the week? Do you see people who are lacking for good relationship? People that are lacking for support? People that are lacking for power? Yeah, that's our orphan and that's our widow. And that's who God asks us to pay attention to. And the beautiful thing again here, don't go down the old covenant road of guilt or I need to try harder. Let's stay on the new covenant road of father This is your compassion. What action would you give me today for an orphan or a widow? I will pay attention, and when the time comes, I'll receive it from you and give it to them. That's what it means to be in the new covenant. So please do not think of anything else but, oh, this sounds awesome. There's no shame and guilt here. That's the old motivation from anger. Oh, I wish I was a better Christian. I didn't do it this week. I didn't pay attention. No, no, no. Throw that away. That just leads to... This, not the righteousness of God, but instead, let us receive the word implanted in our hearts and say, who in my life this week is powerless, needs support, lacks relationship, is in high distress? Is there something I can say or do as a gift to that person? Can I give them a glass of water? Can I ask them a question? Can I give them a ride? Can I take them to lunch? This is what it is to be homo neo, simply aware receiving from God, and always ready to give. This is why Jesus could say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke and burden is not, here are 355 commandments, work hard at it and be a good person. And if you have to, get angry at yourself when you're not. And feel shame and feel guilt because it motivates. That's demonic thinking. That's homo veteris thinking. Homo neo thinking is, God, you're good. And every good and perfect gift comes from above. Give me a gift that I can give away today. And that's what it means to be a new human, a new Christian. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Does that sound like hard work? It does? Yeah. Right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Doesn't that sound somewhat countercultural? Can you imagine if we, if, as we become a family that regularly acts this way, People are going to go, wow, I really like that person. That person was really nice. I'm grateful for that person. And that's all Jesus has asked us to be. Because when Jesus walked around, that's what he did. People were like, wow, that guy's amazing. That guy says life-giving stuff. That, life, that guy has superpowers. He is clearly a homo neo. Uh, and Jesus now lives in you, and he lives in me. Not by memorial, and not by ideas that he's given us that we should try to live up to, but he lives within us by the Holy Spirit and gives us power. So Jesus legitimately can act today, but he can act through every one of us. That's why Jesus said, when I go away, you will do even greater things. No one individually does a greater thing than Jesus, but I guarantee that all of us together actually do more than Jesus did, other than die on the cross. (laughs) 
we are able to touch more lives. We are able to heal more brokenness. We are able to hug more people than Jesus ever could. And again, it's not us being good. It's actually letting Jesus be himself in us. Let's, um, let's pray this in. Yeah? Anything that, that needs to be added? Is the Spirit telling anybody anything like, hey, Rick, what about this? Anything? No? Okay. Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that it is, it's really good news. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps rescue us from approaching your word as, as burden or commandment or weight or things I should do. Thank you in the word, Father, for defining for us a new way of being the people we want to be. Jesus, thank you for taking away the old efforts that failed, taking away sin, taking away trying hard and struggling and wrestling. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us that that doesn't work. It never produces what you want, and it never produces what we want. Jesus, we ask you today as we go through this day that this word that we've shared right now would go deep inside of us, that it would be implanted in our hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, for your guidance today and tomorrow to show us, hey, this is where we were. This is what we were talking about. And right now, I have something for you to give away. Please pay attention. Here it is. God, I pray for a moment for each one of us this week like that. And I pray for just a a deepening lifestyle of uh, receiving from you grace, power, goodness, gifts, and then giving those away uh, to the people you intend. God, we want to be like this. We want to live integrated lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you made the way. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you give us the power. And we just say, "Let let it happen. Our arms are open hearts are open. God, let it happen. Let us be new women, new men. Yeah, let us do this.